Welcome to the Wards Auto Podcast. I'm David Kiley, Senior Editor at Wards Auto. Well, we have been discussing the transition from an ice-focused industry to one that is moving quickly toward electrification. In each episode, we have been talking to newsmakers, CEOs, analysts, etc., about the pain, trials, opportunities, and strategies that are all part of that transition. What we really have not talked about yet is the culture changes happening around electrification, the culture inside the companies we cover and write about. Take Ford, for example. They have divided the company into three business units, one dedicated to the EV future, one dedicated to the existing ICE business, and one dedicated to Ford Pro which is the company's commercial vehicle business, where the revenue comes from both the sale of vehicles as well as the fleet managing software services. That's a tricky arrangement because you have telegraphed to the white-collar workforce that one unit is about the present and one unit is about the future. And that sets up the potential for people in the ICE business feeling like they aren't part of the cool part of the company. There is precedent for this at Ford, but the examples, and I don't mean to pick on Ford, but there is a learning here for any company. 24 years ago, when Ford created the Premier Auto Group under CEO Jack Nasser, a unit that was comprised of Volvo, Aston Martin, Land Rover, Jaguar, most of the executives dumped their Ford, Mercury, and Lincoln company cars and opted for one of the luxury brands instead. And while Ford never took their eye off the truck business, which has always paid the bills, the blue oval car business really suffered from lack of attention and focus. Being on blue oval cars in those days, insiders say, was a sign your career was off the track. That's culture, and it's important. Jan Griffiths consults with companies, especially automakers and suppliers, about culture and employee motivation, as well as issues of inclusion. She has a company called Gravitas Detroit and a podcast of her own, which I highly recommend, called the Automotive Leaders Podcast. Jan is a former executive in the auto industry, and she's quite a maverick, which explains why she struck out on her own. Jan and I met recently in Traverse City at the MBS conference and discussed the issue of culture as the companies we cover go through the most profound transformation we have seen since the dawn of the assembly line to replace hand-building cars in a stationary setting. When we come back, Jan Griffiths. The Wards Auto Podcast is brought to you by Wards Intelligence. Wards Intelligence provides trusted data, expert insight, and reliable forecasts into the automotive and auto tech industries. Renowned for their extensive, current, and historical data sets, pragmatic perspective, and industry-embedded analysts, it's easy to see why over 90% of their subscribers renew each year. To learn more about their market-leading automotive intelligence capabilities, head over to wardsintelligence.informa.com. 
So I'm here with Jan Griffiths of uh, Gravitas Detroit and the host of the Automotive Leaders Podcast. Thanks a lot for joining us, uh, Jan. It is great to be here with you, David. Thank you. <laughs> so uh, I should tell the audience we're up here at Traverse City at the uh, Center for Auto Research, MBS, uh, the annual gathering up here, and lots to talk about. EVs and some about uh, and the transformation, the tension of transforming the industry from an ice-based industry to uh, one of electrification. And one of the things that I really found interesting talking with you, and which what I wanted to share with our audience, and uh, is is this idea of cultural transformation and the the fact that we know the transformation in terms of operations and the product, et cetera, that's going on now. But I want to talk to you a bit about the cultural transformation that is or isn't happening at the automakers and the, and the uh, tier one suppliers in particular as this is going on. Well, you're absolutely right, David. We're all focused on product transformation. It's ice to bev, ice to bev. That's all we can think about. And yes, it's happening and it's happening fast. And our attention needs to be on the product. But we cannot ignore the people side of this equation, the culture that has to go along with it. And I will quote John McElroy, who I interviewed recently on my podcast. And he said, we're going to see more change in this industry in the next seven years than we have seen in the past 100 so that's a, that's a little tweak on the quote of more change in the next five than we've seen in the last 50, which was the Mary Barra quote from several years ago. Yeah. Now, it's, it's different. More change in the, la- in the next seven than in the past 100? I mean, think about that. But we're not paying enough attention to the culture side of this and the people and the leadership that has to go along with it. And to quote Stephen Covey, Stephen Covey said... We cannot win in the marketplace without also winning in the workplace. The cultural transformation has to go along with it. And quite frankly, David, that's what I'm devoting my life to right now. So there are some people who um, have spoken to this issue in the past, Bill Ford being one of them. And despite the fact that his name is on the building um, and he knows that company through and through, he has said both publicly and privately when I've talked to him, that this is one of the things that he's most concerned about, which is that here we have an industry that is going from a hardware-centric industry to a software-centric industry. And you and I both know that the big three, as an example, uh, have way over-indexed on Big Ten schools (laughs) for the last, you know, 50, 60 years. And now with this software-based business... They have to be and and are trying desperately to attract people from Silicon Valley who are used to job hopping and uh, living in California and going to school at places like MIT and Stanford. Um, And uh, and that's a big change, particularly for Detroit. Yeah. When we look at these two cultures, so we look at the legacy OEM culture that we know and love so well, and then we look at the EV startup culture, call it the California culture, the Silicon Valley culture, whatever you want to call it, right? There is no right or wrong. There is no the legacy OEM is right and the EV culture is wrong and vice versa. It is going to take strong leadership to identify what culture they want for their company and then 
pick what works for them, the best parts of the California culture and the best parts of the legacy culture. And let me give you an example of that. So legacy OEMs know how to launch product. They know how to, how to put a car, a vehicle, a truck into the market and ramp it up. The EV companies struggle with that. We saw that a few years ago with Tesla. But there are good things about the California culture. They are less siloed. They look more at the total architecture of the vehicle, the way that they design, the way that they approach problems, the way that they approach things within their business. They're, they're not thinking in silos. So that's something that we probably want to adopt for our future culture in automotive. So there are pluses and minuses on both sides, but it's up to the leader of the business to determine and state clearly what their culture is, and then find a way to amplify that culture throughout the organization. And this is something that we've not seen too much of in traditional OEMs. We see typically, you know, a value statement, right? Something that's written on a conference room wall that really doesn't mean anything. If you look at Mary Barra, she's done an awesome job of defining exactly what the GM culture is and making sure that it's amplified out there in the community. So one of the things that I'm thinking of right right off, uh, I've covered the industry for 40 years, and I've gone, I've, I've covered as a journalist all of these these uh, series of restructurings and rethinkings and right sizing and all this kind of thing. So there has long been a culture in General Motors and Ford and and Chrysler, for example, where they rotate people in to jobs, right, and they're going to spend maybe 18 months in that job. And so culturally, the person thinks, oh, I have to make my mark while I'm here for this 18 months. So what can I do? Um, I'm going to rethink uh, and redesign the trunk lock, you, you know, the, the thing that actually locks the trunk down. And that's going to be the thing that I get through and I put my mark on. Guess what? The trunk lock didn't need to be redesigned and rethought. Okay, so... And that's how, for example, Ford got to the point where it was sourcing like 22 different radios for its vehicles, you know, and things like that. So to me, those kinds of things, which to my observation, keep creeping back into the companies, like they might do away with it one year, but five or six years later, they're back where they started because the culture resists that, that change, right? So it strikes me that in a software-based industry, which is where we are and, and where we're headed, that kind of legacy culture can't work. It cannot make the Fords, the GMs, the Nissans competitive with Tesla. Well, you just said that somebody coming into the organization wanting to make their mark, right? Mm -hmm. And that really resonated with me because I know that culture. I grew up in that culture. You were expected to come in and show people what you got, right? Mm -hmm. What you got the goods, you know, you know what you're doing and make your mark. But that goes right back to the leadership and the culture. Why? Why do you have to do that? Because as, as a young person coming into the industry, you're looking around you and you're saying, well, that's what I need to do in order to be promoted mm -hmm. in this culture. What if you could just come into a culture in automotive and just be who you are, be comfortable in your own skin and know that if you contribute to the team 
and the end goal for whatever the function is or the product is, that that's, that's good and that you can indeed make a mistake and that's okay. All through my career, uh, you know, the idea of making a mistake and we talk now about fail fast forward mm-hmm. or fail forward fast, forget that. You know, it, when I grew up in this industry, the idea of failing was absolutely not tolerated. So now you've got a whole culture of people that grew up with that mentality who are now leading tier ones and OEMs. And they, you, you can't operate like that anymore. If you want innovation, you have to iterate fast, which means you have, you're going to make mistakes. Because innovation, by definition, is you try and you fail and you try and you fail mm-hmm. until you get to that one idea. It's a huge culture shift that we've got in our industry right now. So one of the things that I still think pervades the car companies, and particularly uh, GM and Ford, uh, I've never really spent that much time in and around Stellantis and Chrysler before that, but um, are, is the culture of meetings. You know, and I've, I've encountered people who have gone in, like famously Bob Lutz, uh, for the time that he was head of product, you know, at, at General Motors, he, he was just shattered by the number of meetings and that, you know, the meetings about how the meeting that was going to happen three days from now needs to play out. Like, there was this performance art to meetings. Um, and I don't know if the pandemic has... has uh, has changed that because basically meetings were, you know, reverted to teams and, you know, and that kind of thing. But, but I can't imagine the same meeting culture that I'm familiar with at Ford and General Motors existing at Tesla, for example. I can't speak to Tesla. I've never worked at Tesla, but I will tell you this, that meeting culture is changing. There are still remnants of the old culture. You're talking about the pre-alignment meetings, right? Let's get aligned for the meeting that's happening in three days, right? Well, what's, what's the point in doing that? I prefer the Japanese mentality, which is you talk to the stakeholders ahead of time right, individually, and then you have the meeting, and then you make the decision, and then you move on. I really like that approach. I think that's much more efficient, and it's a much better way to make decisions. What happens in a lot of these meetings is we don't want to, we don't want to upset anybody, right? We all go back to this need to be liked, and there are people out there that say, oh, I don't need to be liked. I'm just here to do my job. Yeah, you do. If you have a pulse, believe me, as a human being, your brain tells you you're programmed to be liked. You want to be liked for safety. You mm-hmm. want the tribe around you, right? Yes. So we want, we want to be liked. But we also need to be authentic and honest and be able to put our voice forward in a meeting. And psychological safety, and that's what that is, being, creating a safe space for you to put your idea forward. Psychological safety is the number one trait of a high-performance team. Google conducted a project several years ago. It's called Project Aristotle. And they searched high and low to find out what is the makeup of a high-performance team? What is it? Is it education? Is it ethnic background? Is it diversity? What is it? And they couldn't find the answer. So then they tried and tried and tried, and they researched and researched, and then they found it. And they said, you know what? It's psychological safety. And can you imagine, I look back on my career, how much time we would have saved if everybody felt comfortable in coming to a meeting saying what they really thought about something, Mm -hmm. not just saying yes 
to be a people pleaser, but saying what they really thought, that voice being respected, and then walking out of the room where you either agree and commit, which is easy, or you disagree, but you commit. Yeah. And there was nobody, you know, running into offices, backstabbing each other or trying to align, you know, outside of that. It was like, yep, we've had this discussion. We don't all agree, but we're all in. That's where we that's where we need to get to. Yeah, because that doesn't exist right now. The the I can tell you because I've worked I've had the benefit of being a journalist covering this stuff for a long time, but I've also had a few um uh cul-de-sacs of my career where I worked inside the automakers and psychological safety does not exist. It does not exist. I will tell you an example as you know I interview many leaders, automotive leaders on my podcast, and the leader of Tata Technologies, his name is Warren Harris, he practices what they call vulnerability-based trust. And I've interviewed him in depth on this issue. He follows the Pat Lencioni methodology, and he, he strives for what he calls organizational health. Mm-hmm. And he's all about vulnerability-based trust. And if we had more leaders like that, that would believe in that, then we could get this rate of transformation in our culture that we so desperately need to go along with the product transformation. So let me bring this back to the transformation to EVs that we're in. It strikes me uh, that there are a lot of people at the automakers who grew up in what I will call the legacy company. And so now, and you have uh, Ford, for example, has divided its business essentially with ICE Legacy and EVs going forward, which to me, psychologically, you're now inside this company and you're either on yesterday's team or you're on today and tomorrow's team. And so to me, that is a, a, a powerful psychological thing about your job and your job status and your sense of security. And so you've got a lot of people from the legacy businesses, the ICE business, who are trying to prove themselves as relevant in the, the future that we're going very quickly towards. How does that play into the company's culture now? Well, I think Jim Farley's got a very difficult task ahead of him, right, to change a legacy company that's been around for over 100 years And you're right. When you split the company down the middle, there is this sense of, well, you know, ICE is going away. So, you know, you're on the the old team kind of thing. And that's going to be really difficult. But look, we're here today at CAR. And and what have we heard today at CAR in the the forecasting session that we had? Joe McCabe talking about, look, ICE isn't going away anytime soon. It's not. We all like to think it is. And yes, will the EV adoption come on uh, at an an alarming rate? Yeah, but ICE is not going away. It's going to be around for a while. Mm. So it doesn't necessarily mean that if you're in the ICE part of the company that, you know, you're sort of writing you off. But the part that I think is the bigger challenge for Farley is this, is that it's still one culture at Ford. How do you split that culture? culture. Mm. How do you change that culture? I mean, splitting it is one thing, but from what I can see, the purchasing people are still operating the same way. doesn't matter whether they're in the old, the blue oval or the new, mm-hmm. the new business unit. It's, 
they're operating the same way. And again, I'll go back to my interview with John McElroy and John said clearly, and I agree with him wholeheartedly, the CEOs have a message of OEM CEOs, tier one CEOs. They're all walking the talk, great. Where it all breaks down is at the buyer level. And that, I'll go back to my supply mm -hmm. chain um, history. I worked <clears throat> in supply chain for decades. When you're measuring bias, by purchase price variance on pure price mm -hmm. and nothing else. I mean, you may give lip service to other metrics, but really, if you bonus those buyers on purchase price variance, that's what you're going to get, and the culture's not going to change. So we got work to do. Yeah, I, in purchasing, it's John, I have a tremendous amount of respect for John, he's right, is that you can talk all the talk you want to, but as an example, uh, we are also in an age of uh, sustainability and, and wanting to source material based on where it comes from, its recyclability, et cetera, et cetera. So I interviewed a, a person in, per, in, um, in the sustainability space last year. I won't say which company but because um, uh, I don't want to get them in trouble. But they were getting an award and they said, um, you know, I could do a lot more. If I could get uh, if I could get purchasing on my side, and I said, "What do you mean?" I said, "Well, we've we've been able to bring some new suppliers um, that are on small scale, you know, in because I've got this discretionary fund that I can I can buy stuff from, but I can't scale it because of the Byzantine uh, process to get a new supplier." qualified in in the purchasing system we have now mm. and 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 i said well isn't that can't you take that to the top can't you can't you tell that to the c-suite that you know we can do a lot better here but you're going to have to and she's and the person said yeah that doesn't really work <laughs> yeah it's uh, fascinating we talk about innovation and bringing in new technologies and new suppliers into this industry, but a lot of the purchasing <clears throat> systems are, set, are not set up that way. You give a 25-page boilerplate document, T's and C's, to a startup, and they're going to run away screaming. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's a different approach that we need to bring on these new suppliers and nurture them and coach them. And don't take my word for it, I interviewed Jeremy McCool. He's the CEO of Hevo, the mm -hmm. wireless EV charging company. And I asked him, I said, what was it like coming to Detroit, you know, the first time trying to, to get into the OEMs? And he has secured some OEM contracts. And he said, one word, antiquated. And he shared very openly with me that it would have been so much easier if the OEMs would have adopted more of a coaching, nurturing type of approach, which we all know in the automotive, those words are not in the vocabulary of most purchasing executives in the auto industry. So it's going to, again, it goes right back to culture change, David. Yeah. So I talked to a guy yesterday, uh, recently retired from one of the uh, OEMs, and he, his area is in software. And he was talking about the difficulty, and again, it's 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 cultural uh, consistency you're matching up. He said there are people who have been in software in the OEMs for several years who are undervalued by their organizations. There are people coming in from Silicon Valley uh, who are overvalued because. Doing software, um, doing writing code or doing software development 
for Google or for Apple or for Amazon or for uh, Salesforce, it's not the same thing as as doing it for an auto company in in the transportation sector, and th- that that difference, that nuance gets lost, he said, by a lot of people. And the other problem that they're facing is, you know, Ford and General Motors and Toyota and Hyundai, they're used to having employees work for them for decades, okay? And that's still part of their culture and that's part of their legacy. When you're dealing with software-based cars and coders and developers, you're lucky to have them for 18 months um, before they go for the you know the next big thing or, or the next opportunity or you know. So talk about how the automakers are coping, getting used to or not getting used to that change that they've they've suddenly got. Instead of engineers who spend their whole careers or half their careers at Ford, they've got software engineers who are going to spend, you know, seven minutes uh, with, with them. Yeah, that's a really good point. And we are in the gig economy and the employer-employee relationship as we know it is changing. We are moving away from the traditional employer-employee type relationship. You are going to have people out there with specialized skills and knowledge that sit on a platform, uh, Upwork, Fiverr, whatever type of platform there is. And you will employ those people for their specific skills for a specific period of time. Now, that is going to require a whole different leadership style. And that's where culture comes into play. And it really is going to demand a more authentic leadership model, which is not one that we're comfortable with in automotive. We do love command and control in automotive. I mean, you look up command and control in the dictionary and the automotive industry is right there. It's a hallmark (laughs) of it, right? So we are switching to more of an authentic leadership model. We have to recognize that different people have different needs at different times in their lives. And a good leader needs to meet people where they're at. And again, our old culture demands that we treat people the same, no matter what. That's not going to work anymore. Hmm. I'm not sure that ever was really the case with treating everybody the same. <laughs> yeah. I think, I think the thing that you you mentioned earlier that um, uh, is still a part of organizations, which is yes, you have to know your stuff, you have to have the skills, but you also have to have the skill to be liked by your the tribe that you are plopped down in, and and. In my experience, that's still too much of the culture. Um, people, I, I found, I, I am not personally, I, I have decided, it took me a long time to realize this. I'm just not meant for a corporate environment because I'm all about the work and I really give shorter shrift to, okay, do does, does, does the five people in this meeting uh, like me? <laughs> it just, you know, it's like, that's uh, not, it, it doesn't enter into it. I, I want to have us on a track where we get the job done on time as well as we can as a team without having people behind their laptops at 12 midnight and 1 in the morning. You know, it's like, cause that's a process problem when that happens. But um, anyway, uh, Jan, I, I want to give you a little chance. This has been great. I love listening to you. And it's not just because of your Welsh accent, although that that certainly helps. (laughs) 
Well, tell 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 our listeners uh, if they're interested in having you come in to talk to their groups about culture um, and things like that. What's the best way for them to get in touch with you? Yeah. Well, first of all. I'm the architect of cultural transformation in the automotive industry. And if somebody is interested in looking at the culture transformation to go along with the product transformation, they should reach out to me. My website is gravitasdetroit.com. And I would also encourage them to listen to the Automotive Leaders podcast where I feature only authentic leaders that truly get it and understand cultural transformation and they're actually practicing it. They are sharing their stories. And some of the companies that you will hear out there, you might be surprised. They're typical command and control companies, but there are bright spots in all of these companies. And we need to amplify those stories so that we can accelerate the, tr- the cultural transformation in this industry, David. And I'm all in. So are you, when you work with a company, do you, are you mostly go in and, and talk? Or do you also have a track to your business where... You know, you you kind of move in and set up camp for a while and work with their HR and talent development and, and corporate culture people to sort of, you know, give them some some templates, some thinking and, and have an ongoing relationship with them. Yeah, there are three parts to this, David. The first one is getting the leadership on the same page, and that's typically conducted with an off-site meeting because when people are in their home office, they're too distracted. I take them off-site. We design a meeting around getting everybody on the same page. What is your culture? Defining your culture. Sometimes people haven't even spent you know, a minute thinking or talking about that. That's step one. Once we know what that is, then we have to amplify that because it's one thing for the top leadership to understand it, but then you've got to get that through thousands of people. I have an online course that I then take the basic structure of that course around the 21 traits of authentic leadership customize it for that particular client. And then the third part of that is to use the power of podcasting, my other passion, to develop an internal podcast that really hits the metrics that the company cares about, such as employee engagement, attraction, and retention. And that keeps the culture alive, David, because we're sharing stories. It's not corporate communications. It's not corporate speak. We're sharing stories about what's happening in that company, amplifying the culture and keeping it alive. And that's how we do it. You know, I just want to, because we have mentioned Ford quite, quite a number of times, but when Alan Mulally uh, came to Ford, it was only um, he had had a career at Boeing. And I was just thinking as you were talking that here's a guy who had all of this command and control uh, right, experience behind him. But he went, to, he went through coaching. He went through like a reforming process to edit out the qualities that he had developed over time that were not very productive to being a modern CEO and learned, you know, in his early, late 50s, early 60s, I think, how to change. And, and for my money, for the time he was at Ford, he was a remarkable uh, transformational uh, CEO. So, so self-examination uh, in, in the C-suite is, I guess, the point I'm making. Is, is something not to be 
dismissed as the softer side of the business. Yeah, and actually self-awareness is one of my 21 traits of authentic leadership. Mm -hmm. And I'm with you. I think Mulali did did an awesome job, um, but the culture has slipped back a little bit. Yes, it has. Come back, Alan. We love you. (laughs) Well, Jane Griffiths, thank you so much for joining us on the Wards Auto Podcast. And I look forward to having you again sometime, too. My pleasure. Thank you, David. Well, thank you to Jan Griffiths and the good people at the Center for Auto Research for a solid conference this year where I got to talk to some really smart, compelling people. I'm David Kiley, Senior Editor at Wards Auto. Our Chief Engineer is Graham Mitchell. Remember to subscribe to Wards Auto Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcast, and other leading podcast platforms, or you can play it right off our site when you see an article teeing up a new episode. Inside the article is a graphic that says, listen now. Click on that and you can play it directly. Till next time, drive safely and drive smart.